From SBF to Jack Dorsey, pop CEOs plant seeds of change in the fertilizer of their failures. I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. Few announcements. I am having two Christmas parties next week. The Conspiracy Christmas Cocktail Party with political dark side Johnny Vedmore, who had a great show on the Higher Side Chats recently, Parallel Mike. There might be some surprise guests I'm looking forward to, but it's UK-based, so it's at noon on Wednesday the 21st. So it's going to be instead of my live dive that day, You can find the links to that at monicasdeepdives.com in the December newsletter, where you can also find how to watch the domestic cocktail party scheduled for December 22nd, which is Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern with Lady Spaulding, Buck from Counterflow, Behind the scenes, Bobby, we are going to have some cocktails and conversation and a white pill Christmas. So join us there. You can also check out some of the Union of the Unknowns, perhaps. I just posted the second half of my conversation with them, so you can look for that. And one really great thing, that is a podcast that came out of the uh, Propaganda Report community. And I have gotten other messages of great things that have come out of that community. And one of them is that Jackie of the Union of the Unknowns got Cam uh, a little job. I think it's gig type, so I hope it lasts forever, but it might not. Anyway, so he his family is on the road to better times. I don't know if you've been following that. COVID kind of devastated his work situation, and he's got five kids. So I did want to shout out his GoFundMe. He's close to his goal, but not quite there. It's called Help the Harlesses Stay Afloat, H-I-R-L-E-S-S-E-S. And I'm only shouting it out because I know that he's on the road to bridging that big gap that was left because of his employment situation. But I thought it would be nice to chip in for his kids to have something special for Christmas. I do worry about that. Those are Christmas presents are luxuries, but we're also feeling generous right now. So Uh, I was just feeling the love and thought I'd shout that out one last time and hopefully see everybody at those parties next week. And now on with the show, let's climb up onto the diving platform and take a giant stride a little bit out of left field. It's a blog post from Jack Dorsey that was described in a Daily Mail headline, Jack Dorsey says Twitter's failures are his fault and investors. And what they emphasized in this was that he was saying, oh, I take full responsibility, although an activist investor made me make a decision that was right for the company, but wasn't right for society. And that's, you know, a systemic failure or whatever. And that reminded me so much of SBF saying similar things like I take full responsibility, but other people made massive mistakes and the guy who's you know, John J. Ray, who's taking it through bankruptcy, is misrepresenting it. He's creating a lot of these problems. Um, I spent too much time worrying about regulators. My my, I went sideways with Binance because of regulators. It's just this weird parallel thing where these guys are kind of quirky, a little too young and informal. Well, Jack Dorsey's not young anymore, but you know he's got that hipster thing going. 
and they're, you know, doing the right thing, saying, you know, what, when I was young, we would call psycho babble, but now it's smacks of whatever, whatever's trendy. Um, but there's an informality about them both that I find a little inauthentic, to be honest. So, uh, you know, I feel like they are saying, you know, I did, I take responsibility because that's what we do, but there are systemic failures. And then when I hear that kind of thing, I look to see what the solutions are. So you can get people who are really competent, who are in positions of authority and have a lot of credibility telling you what failures are, or you can have the New York subway shooter tell you what the failings are. And it seems like either way, no matter, it, it seems like the the bad actor seems to have more influence these days. So you see these two guys who are saying, I suffered through terrible failure or was the cause of failure, but there are changes we can make. So the next idiot like me won't make those same mistakes. So I like to look at what the prescriptions these guys recommend are, but also like John J. Ray, he was, he testified before Congress. He's the acting CEO or current CEO of FTX bringing it through restructuring. He was the guy who restructured Enron and his, so he has prescriptions too. And congressmen say things and all these things are clues to what the actual agendas might be or agenda, I think is plural, uh, agenda might be behind all of these. Um, you know, in, in most of these cases, I can, I think these things are, are psyops. I think they're meant to change the rules. And as Ian Davis and I talked about, on our last show together, which was also recently posted on Deep Dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform, <laughs> that, you know, it sounds like the dialectic, it sounds like crisis or problem, solution, whatever, but it's just that failures demand fixing. Failures demand fixes. So when you see something that should be working fail, you're ushering in a new regime. But for me, a lot of the failures have been manufactured, like the supply chain failure, the failure in American democracy. Like these things seem like they are being, uh, the failures are being ginned up on, on purpose and highly publicized. And, uh, you know, we've really entered the realm of pathocracy, like a government that works against you and not with you or for you. But in this case, I feel like they are talking about um, especially in SBF's case, the, that there's a regulatory failure. But actually, I think in the end, you'll find that there was not a regulatory failure because he says, and I think it's probably true, that the American entity through which he complied with uh, American laws and the SEC and CFTC kind of assert authority over this stuff, um, we can get into that a little bit, the long and short of it is, I think the ultimate regulatory question is, is this an asset or is it a derivative? And the idea is if it's an asset like gold bars or, you know, a, a, a poem <laughs> you know, with a copyright or a song, let's say, if it's an asset, then it's not regulated by the SEC. But if it's a security, if it's like a I guess I would say in the strictest sense of the word, a security is a derivative. It isn't the asset itself, but it represents the asset. That does come under this purview. But those guys assert the right to regulate these crypto exchanges because they are derivative. Um, the exchanges engage in like derivatives. 
then, uh, but I think they want clarity on that. I think that's one of the agenda items there is that they want it to be crystal clear that crypto falls under that. I would say it's an asset because it isn't a derivative of anything. But but when it is when it's derivative products, then yes, it is. So it's a little this whole thing can get really mired. Uh, but I will do my best to keep it clear. But I, I did want to refer people to my initial treatment of this. The FTX scandal feels like I just dove right in. But on December 2nd, I did like, I don't know if it was an hour. It might have been my longest deep dive ever on the whole SBF, you know, what we knew at that point. But now the latest headline was that right on the, like the eve of Sam Bankman Freed, that's SBF's name, on the eve of his testimony before Congress, he was arrested by Bahamian authorities and could not testify before Congress. He did submit a draft of what his comments, his opening comments would be, but he wasn't sworn in, I don't think. So it would not count as perjury. So in my mind, it's like pure propaganda. And I want to get to that kind of immediately, but I thought it would be important to touch on what Jack Dorsey said in this recent blog post. I'm not sure I fully understand it all, but in the interest of giving you a what to watch out for, because people are focusing on the wrong thing when it comes to this blog post, he says that he did commit some failures here and that he has three solutions And the three solutions are a little hard to understand. They're not crystal clear on their face. Social media must be resilient to corporate and government control. Like, what does that mean? Uh, Two, only the original author may remove content they produce, so nobody can take your tweet down. And then moderation is best implemented by algorithmic choice. So you moderate your own feed and nobody else moderates it. So... He then goes on to say, and I think this has something to do with his company, which used to be called Square and is now called Block. I think this has to do with that, which is, you know, it's it's not my area of expertise at all, but it's about putting all this stuff on blockchain. I'm pretty sure. That's why it's called Block. <laughs> I think Web5 is also something they, I don't know if that's the exact same thing, but if you've heard that handle... But he, I'll just read what he says and you can make of it what what you will. The only way I know to truly live up to these three principles is a free and open protocol for social media. One that is not owned by a single company or group of companies and is resilient to corporate and government influence. I don't, that's just a weird way to put it. The problem, I'm not even sure what he's trying to say. The problem today is that we have companies who own both the protocol and discovery of content, which ultimately puts one person in charge of what's available and seen or not. This is by definition a single point of failure, no matter how great the person and over time will fracture the public conversation and may lead to more control by governments and corporations around the world. Now, why can't you just have competing social media? You know, why can't it just be a bunch of things? So, but he goes on to say something that rang a bell for me. So I am, I actually have this little Twitter function on monicasdeepdives.com. So it has a few issues. So I'm not going to drive people to it right now, but I've been trying to kind of create my own little Twitter thing 
uh, just because I've been deplatformed too many times. And it has been recommended to me to use Mastodon, which is kind of like a walled garden for each user to have your own little Twitter feed for your own followers to come. I didn't really, I, I, I was working on this thing for myself, so I didn't really go for that, but I understood what the point was. The point was nobody can moderate you because you basically own your feed. Now, it doesn't cross over. Maybe it does. Maybe it does. I don't know because I didn't use it. But he refers to Mastodon in his thing. So I get why people like this because it was offered to me as a solution to the my imminent deplatforming on Twitter, which never happened to my amazement. As far as the free and open, although deep dives, I think I have one that's at Monica deep dives, something like that. That got taken down, but I complained and they put it back up. So I don't know. Anyway, as far as the free and open social media protocol goes, he says, there are many competing projects at Blue Sky is one with the AT protocol. Mastodon is another matrix yet another, and there will be more. One will have a chance at becoming a standard like HTTP or SMTP. This isn't about quote decentralized Twitter. Oh, well, I thought that's what it was about. Uh, it's a focused and urgent push for foundational core technology standards to make social media a native part of the internet. I believe this is critical both to Twitter's future and the public conversation's ability to truly serve the people, which helps hold governments and corporations accountable, hopefully makes it all a lot more fun and informative again. I am absolutely positive that that's a front for some way more comprehensive change and I'm sure the change is coming because this guy is a change agent and it's a much bigger thing. I put in the show notes, there's like 25 articles in the show notes, but one of them is, let me take a moment to find it from Medium and it's called Jack Dorsey Web 5 and the Internet Computer Protocol, the Decentralization of Web Platforms. So there's a lot to it. I'm not the girl. Maybe, I mean, if I spent a couple of days on it, I could probably figure it out and break it down for you, but I'm just going to leave that there <laughs> as a what to watch out for. Perhaps we revisit it another time. Perhaps someone else will pick up that thread. And uh, all right, so let's talk about SBF. So the headline that dominated was the fact that he was arrested and he is supposedly going to be held in a Bahamian jail until February 8th. And I'm just kind of wondering if it was like, uh, you know, like on... Um, Andy Griffith, where the drunk just like would let himself in and out of the thing, or Jeffrey Epstein for that, for that matter, I think he was in and out. So I just, I have a feel, you know, just have this vision of the Bahamian jail being like a beach chair and an umbrella and a drink with an umbrella in it. <laughs> anyway, who the heck knows? So, um, but I did feel like his, his statement and John J. Ray's statement were important. They had a lot of important information, more his more than the other guy. But there were there's some fishy things that emerged since my last treatment of this, which was that he was saying how CZ, the Binance guy, CZ, which stands for cubic zirconium, which is a fake diamond. So I totally think Binance is going to be also a psyop. I don't know what's going to happen there. I feel like there's another shoe to drop. But um so this all started because this guy tweeted uh, something about the underlying asset of FTX um, being not valuable. And this is a guy who supposedly was the largest holder of it, and he said that before he cashed out, which is insane and not believable. But there was also a, 
another weird thing that precipitated this problem or front ran the bankruptcy is that apparently an insider, insider, FTX insider, tipped off the Bahamian authorities of some untoward activity days before the bankruptcy. So the Bahamians acted first, took over the international arm of FTX. So it is not part of the U.S. bankruptcy proceedings are not, those assets are not available to the U.S. And, uh, it's just, it's just weird. It's just weird that that's what would happen and when it would happen. And it's weird that, you know, I feel like there should be some recourse to this CZ guy for intentionally inflicting, I mean, I would say in a tour to be intentionally inflicting emotional distress, but it's intentionally uh, inflicting financial losses. I don't know if that's so wrong. I know, you know, I don't know if it's illegal. I know the head of the Nikola company, the guy, what is his name? I have it here. Trevor Milton was convicted of fraud based on public statements he made around the time of the IPO in the summer of 2020. And I can't help but think CZ is getting away with this stuff. Elon Musk said stuff on Twitter that that did cost people money. And I think he just got a slap on the wrist. He certainly wasn't convicted of fraud um, or charged with it for that matter. And I uh, read that recently some influencers, financial influencers from social media were, I believe, brought up on some kind of charges or sued by the regulatory authority, regulatory authorities for intentionally influencing uh, the prices of securities. Uh, so, you know, when these things happen, people do like, if you or I did it, we would get penalized for it. But when these guys do it, it's just part of some public drama. And I think that a really, really big part of what's happening here is, and always has been with FTX public, public drama. He names names. He makes accusations in his congressional thing, which is of course why he couldn't read it into the record. It's probably bad enough that he, that he's saying it at all. I mean, he is he's libeling people. And with his level of resources from his parents who were the lawyers, Caroline Ellison's parents who were the uh, economics professors at MIT, you, and, and he has other resources I've got to tell you about that just blew me away. The people who are on the inside here who let, you know, the presentation that these guys are, you know, that Caroline Ellison isn't even 30 yet. This kid's 30. Um, they seem very wheels off that they're just running around shooting from the hip. It's just not really believable. And I can't help but think that when he's actually accusing people of stuff, either they're just never going to sue him for it. And I would think that they weren't because who's he's, he's accusing is like Sullivan and Cromwell, his own, his own general counsel, just like Elon Musk, dismissed the Twitter general counsel recently. Like it's, and that guy was a total inside job, James Baker, the former FBI guy. This inside counsel has a weird name, Ryan Miller, R-Y-N-E. I'll tell you his backstory. He's the general counsel. He was the guy who SBF is accusing of pressuring him. This is one of the things that was in his uh, statement, SBF said he, that he was pressuring him to declare bankruptcy, to sign Sullivan Cromwell, his former firm that, um, 
John J. Ray, I believe, used Sullivan and Cromwell for the Enron bankruptcy and proceeded to generate $700 million in fees around that, is what it says in SVF's pages, his statement. So I feel like he would not be saying this stuff unless he knew that he would not get sued into oblivion, not that he has any assets, but they can reach forward forever, basically, for stuff like that, I think. So this like incredibly rash statement, I feel like is just set up for more of like the CZ Elon Musk Twitter thing and less like the guys who get taken up on charges, like it's all for the show of it and the normal course of events, which would involve process and law and all of that are not going to happen. Maybe this will be used to say, look, like we are in a wild west here, but, but we're not. Even crypto is not in a wild west. So... Uh, and then, like, to make that whole drama thing accelerated is this John J. Ray saying things that are extremely alarmist and that SBF conflicts with, like, says the opposite. And I actually think SBF, the things that he says, will probably either have a team, you know, be like it'll be a rah-rah, like people who think SBF was right and people who think that he was wrong, or maybe he'll be totally vindicated. I don't know, but I think there, there's going to be some meat on the bones of the SBF stuff. He, he does spin ideas that sound like conspiracy theories, and then he criticizes conspiracy theories, but I feel like there's going to be something there that um, there's going to be a plot twist. But what Ray is saying is that FTX, U.S., which SBF says is totally solvent. He says, as we sit here today, it is not solvent because we have holes in the balance sheet. So he's really just saying he doesn't have the information and or sounds like that's what he's saying. And, and that, but by panicking people, I think people still own FTT. I have to double check, but that was the underlying token. And if you think FBX is, FTX is ever going to come back and SBF is insisting that it should, that that would be the actual prudent thing to do, that, it's, that it could be a going concern and that would restore the asset value to these people, strictly talking about the American operations, mind you. But if, and both of them say that their goal is to make whole the investors. And I think he, they mean like the retail investors, not necessarily like Sequoia Capital, but maybe everything, I don't know. But but it would be a little bit of a sleight of hand if Ray goes and talk and and scares FTT holders, anyone who's left, or any kind of assets or securities that are out there, if he scares them into selling cheap, and if he's at the other on the other side of those deals, I don't know if they're allowed to do this. I really don't know. I think a company could probably do it. I'm not sure if these guys can do it, but they are a company. Yeah, I mean, they are a company. I think you might be able to go into a secondary market if there is one and buy this stuff super, super cheap. And if you buy it back super cheap, you're real outstanding and you retire it. Your outstanding liabilities might be quite low. <laughs> and then you could make people whole and it would make this guy look like a hero again. I'm not sure that's what's going on here. But he is saying alarmist things that can that he might just keep his mouth shut. Uh, he said things like it's just good old-fashioned embezzlement, which aren't even in the charges. I'll tell you what the charges are for SBF in just a sec. He he go he says this is a quote of his, which is an absolute I think this is an absolute lie. He says, I've done probably a dozen large-scale bankruptcies over my career. 
This one is unusual, and it's unusual in the sense that literally there's no record keeping whatsoever. And I believe that is a complete lie, and I'll tell you for two reasons. One is the private equity investors said they did extensive due diligence. And even if FTX like destroyed the records, those guys would have them in their files. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars of investment. If they did the due diligence, I mean, maybe they just sat in a room and had to give it all back. That is possible. I have seen that happen. But I would think there's information there. Uh, SBF said he had GAP audited financials, like the general accounting principle, whatever, audited financials. And furthermore, there was a massive courts article about the, I think, $4 billion of uh, operating loss carry forwards that they got from, um, from realizing they did it by, I can tell you about it in a little bit. They did it by re- realizing losses and the way courts explains it, I think is misleading, but, and I do want to explain that, uh, in a little bit, but, the, my point now is that you, can, you ha, they filed their taxes. So at least they had to have an income statement. And I think, I mean, you know, I know that an income statement flows from a balance sheet or vice versa or whatever. Like you, you have to have them both. If you're talking about, if you're generating losses from changes in asset values that you're buying and selling, that is a balance sheet item. <laughs> so it's going to, you're going to have financials. So, and he says he has financials and this guy says there's no record keeping whatsoever. I mean, technically maybe if they didn't keep the records, if they made the records, they didn't keep it. But I think you have to keep your tax stuff for seven years and arguably the most valuable thing on this company's books are these lost carry forwards. Because if they allocate them to the private equity investors, those guys can use them to offset income and that's money good. That is money good. And to the extent that I've been wondering if the equity investors are in on it, I was like, why would they do it? Why would they do it just to regulate crypto? Like, why would they do it? Well, they might do it if they will actually make out, you know, I mean, I don't know. This would, that would imply quite a conspiracy. But he thinks that there's a conspiracy between Sullivan Cromwell, John J. Ray, and uh, Ryan Miller. So... Why not? What's so crazy about that? Uh, but it, I also thought it was interesting that the lawmakers, this is from the Wall Street Journal, during these hearings, lawmakers, this is a quote from the journal, lawmakers used the momentum, whatever, to call for stronger laws to police the crypto industry, to criticize the actions of regulators, and to call out colleagues for accepting campaign contributions from SBF and others in his orbit. So this is a good time to tell you what the charges were. Just in a nutshell, uh, the SEC charged with security fraud, the U.S. Attorney in New York, wire fraud, commodities fraud, securities fraud, and money laundering. Uh, I think, yeah, okay. So CFTC, the Commodities Exchange, their their charges weren't as clear, and I just could not, I did not have the time to read like 40 pages of, for each of these guys, so I had to take their press releases at face value. I read more than 40 pages, but I just could not get through all that. Okay, so 
misrepresentation and commingling of funds, misappropriation of funds for personal activities, including luxury, real estate, and political contributions. I just want to knock off a few of these. Um, I think they had some kind of, yeah, political contributions. So what they were saying is that they were lending insiders money and those insiders were making political contributions. Now, when they're talking, and I guess that might be money laundering, I don't know, but like Ray said it was embezzlement, and it looked to me like the money that the people were getting were in the form of loans. They seem sketchy, they seem not well documented, but to the extent that the stuff ever gets paid back, you know, it's not strictly embezzlement. Do they have two sets of books? Like, that's where it starts getting highly criminal, but in that we have a real vacuum of information here. So you're just getting the words of this guy who seems very alarmist. And I'm not saying that this isn't super messed up, like super messed up. But I just feel like with the with the the people involved, it is so squirrely that this kid's gonna get, you know, I just cannot see him serving hard time, you know? I mean, maybe he'll get a Jeffrey Epstein cell with a key. But I don't, I don't even know about that. I feel like there are nuances here when the onion starts getting peeled that we will, uh, that'll change the narrative a little bit. Anyway, it's interesting nonetheless, just cause it's, uh, theatrical, although I doubt I will cover it again for a while. I got a little more than I needed of this today. Like my brain is full. Uh, okay. So in addition to the actual charges, Ray says there's, he kind of basically adds to that total lack of documentation, risk management, and independent governance. And I think SBF cops to risk management, independent governance failures. And he says there's commingling, using client funds for margin trading, spending spree for myriad investments to the tune of $5 billion. I think a lot of that was DeFi, like decentralized finance, similar, you know, realm. And that a lot of those companies also filed bankruptcy, like well over 100, I think, which could have been, you know, a plot to wipe out all the little guys in that in that industry. I don't know. Uh, he said they, a billion dollars of insider loans, uh, engaged with other exchanges and jurisdictions that were inherently unsafe. That's really a prudence thing. And the thing about Ray is he really gives off the same vibe I got from Bill Barr, maybe a little bit like Mueller, but like the Bill Barr thing, or the way Mueller was portrayed for sure, but Bill Barr gave off this like elder statesman above reproach, knows what's up, can't be influenced or intimidated. He just gives that vibe off so that you don't actually ask for proof. You know, nobody's going to say like, are you kidding me? Um, it's, it reminded me, it reminded me of... This Jamie Foxx story, did you ever hear him say this? It's so funny. He's like, I'm not a racist. This is what he's saying. He's like, but he, he said he wants his airline pilots to have like long gray arm hair and shiny bald heads, you know, and the little hair they have super tight, like total Air Force guy. He just, it's very funny, but like there are these archetypal images of guys you trust in certain roles and I just feel like that's that that's been a theme lately. We've seen it, and and it's it it, it deters scrutiny. So SBF's testimony, not sworn. 
I don't think. And it says it was draft. It's reported as being draft. It's very juvenile, very unprofessional. It looks like he's just ranting. It starts with, get this, it starts with, I fucked up. I fucked up. That's what he's going to say in front of Congress. I actually know somebody who testified before Congress, like was on a panel that was in Congress. Nothing as serious as this. Absolutely nothing. It was just nothing. And this person prepared for weeks, had the company, uh, had, for there were a bunch of people on this panel, they had consultants, like former congressmen, consult and tell them what to expect. They were in communication with the people on the panel, the actual senators or Congress, whatever it was, saying like what they were looking for, the kind of questions they would ask. There was all, just a lot of preparation. There was really a team. And it was minor. And I, I just, I cannot believe that this guy has that kind of casual approach when like his parents are two Stanford law professors. His father, I believe, was an employee of the company. Like he, if this goes sideways, that guy could be in trouble. And and his father is a not only a specialist in tax, who's also a clinical psychologist and a specialist in the psychology of tax evasion, which I think he directed at the little guy, which annoys me. But so this whole the whole thing about the the filing his taxes and all of that just, yes, I expect they file the taxes. Anyway, uh, so I just don't think that they would let him do this. I, it just really feels like a psyop because of that too. Uh, all right, so few things that were interesting about it. He, he emphasized that only non-Americans are really exposed. He invokes long-term capital management's failure, and I would add that the MF Global failure were also similar to what's going on here, and I actually think of them as the model that the PSYOP was based on. He's saying, oh, it happens, and I'm like, yes, that, that's why he's referring to it, so you have it in your mind that it's realistic. Uh, he says he had audited gap financial statements. He uh, reiterates that this thing was basically... Um, intentional PR crisis instigated by CZ in order to eliminate FTX as com competition for Binance. So that was another conspiracy theory that he lays out along with the idea that Sullivan and Cromwell and those guys were all in on that together. He highlights that he spent 25% of his time talking to regulators and policymakers, and he's complained about that before, saying it's too much time. He said that the reason he went sideways with Binance and CZ in the first place, he, they were trying to buy him out, is because CZ had uh, KYC, know your customer issues, and it was preventing FTX from progress in the regulatory process. So I don't know what you want to make of that. I guess failure demands fixes. It's not a bad place to refer to that little adage. Um, but here's another thing I came up with. So not only was Ryan Miller kind of weird, and I'll tell you about his backstory a little more in a second. Eliora M. Katz. I don't know why I was looking. I was looking, oh, I was looking, because the, the holding company for FTX US is called West Realm Shires, 
which I think is from like a video game. I wasn't sure if it was like from Robin Hood because they do have SBF owned like 10% of Robin Hood and Robin Hood, it's a whole nother thing that was in the newspaper today, like SEC changes spurred by that, yada, yada. But so I was looking up West Realm Shires and there's like no information on it, even even um, the Wayback Machine, like nothing. And maybe it's out there, but I just couldn't find it. Uh, okay. But is listed on one of the filings of this or some, you know, portal of information, Eliora M. Katz was from April 2022 to November 2022 for West Realm Shires, the FTX U.S. entity, basically the Director of Government Relations and Policy. And she's no slouch. She's from the D.C. area. She was a congressional staffer. She was a journalist at, I'm not sure if she was a professor or, you know, I don't know what her story was, but she's listed at Purdue and the University of Chicago uh, as a as a journalist. I'm not sure if she was a student journalist or what. There's a little video of her from back eight years ago, quite young. Uh, she was associated with the UN, with the Department of Defense. Um, she lived in Israel for a while. She's associated with the Brookings Institute, institution, Hoover Institute, Brookings Institute, and not Hoover. One of them's institute, one of them's institution, and I always forget which is which. So she was uh, associated with Brookings. So this chick's on the inside of the FTX US one, which I think will end up uh, landing on its feet somewhat. I mean, maybe because Ray is going to drive down the price of FTT. I'm not saying it's a good investment. I'm just saying I don't think anyone's going to jail for it. Uh, so she's on the inside there and this guy can't figure out his regulatory compliance. Like, and I've never heard her name mentioned in the context of this. Like these people are highly insulated. So, uh, so then I think that the money here is in his prescriptions, which are weirdly specific. He says, of course, there needs to be a ton of transparency, wallets, addresses, um, and Ray also highlighted this problem. He's like, the biggest problem is we don't know where if we don't know if we have all the wallets. So SBF's like, you have all the wallets. And he's like, well, I don't know. Right. But you would know if you had it. And, but that's the whole thing with crypto. You don't want anyone to have any of that, your address or anything. He says he wants public API, which stands for application programming interface. He wants public API endpoints to pull data, uh, and, he wants private API endpoints that serve anonymized versions of account balances and risk to regulators for oversight. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. Now, um, but it, it, it's, uh, yeah, this whole thing always, it does remind me of the New York subway shooter who decided what the prescription is and then does something bad and they give it to him. That is, that is actually unrolling right now, his prescription. All right. So, you know, I also think that in this like battle of personalities that Ray, maybe the downside of the Bill Barr persona is that he's going to end up looking like a boomer because he's treating this like a conventional situation and it's not, and he doesn't understand how it works and something like that. But, uh, SBF does rail against him extensively in this. Um, and, Oh, I wanted to tell you about Ryan Miller. So he is general counsel of FTX US. He has been since August of 2021, and he still is now 
he, SBF said he pressured him into the bankruptcy. It's a like, he, he said that he pressured him so hard. And then 10 minutes after he signed on the line at four 30 in the morning, he got this offer for billions of dollars to bail the whole company out, like to buy the company. So he said to Sullivan and Cromwell, don't rescind my DocuSign. And they refused and six hours later filed the bankruptcy. So I'm not sure that is exactly how it works. I'm not sure that's legal, but he lays that at the feet of Ryan Miller. Um, But prior to joining FTX, Ryan was a partner and co-head of Sullivan and Cromwell's Commodities, Futures, and Derivatives Group. This is the guy who was their general counsel for the past over one year when this stuff is, there's no records, come on. Uh, Mr. Miller is a member of the Derivatives and Futures Law Committee of the American Bar Association, and he's overseeing this stuff. Okay. Uh, And he is a member of the Executive Committee of the Futures Industry Association's Law and Compliance Division. And this is my favorite part. Mr. Miller previously worked at the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission as legal counsel to CFTC chairman at the time, Gary Gensler. So if you didn't hear the December 2nd one, Gary Gensler worked for Caroline Ellison's father when he taught about crypto policy at MIT, uh, and he is now the head of the SEC. So that's the guy overseeing this debacle. And that, again, is why I think FTX US is going to be just fine, because these guys would have buttoned it up. And the whole thing is just riddled with screenshots of like texts or whatever. I couldn't really read them because I just printed it out, but it reminded me of the Twitter files in that way. And I'm thinking like, we're supposed to get used to receiving official information, screenshots of text exchanges. And I just feel like we're completely circling the drain, (laughs) you know? All right. Uh, Oh, and to make it all look really authentic, like this was just him losing faith in all advisors after the bankruptcy debacle, which he thinks is the real problem here. There was one malapropism in the document, which is he used, I think that's the right way to say it, malapropism, or like he used a word wrongly. So he wrote that CZ's Twitter thread was chalk full of lies instead of chalk full of lies. So I just feel like that was just an Easter egg there for us to find kind of like typos in Trump's Twitter feet, Twitter tweets. All right. And then this, he puts this talking about Easter egg. Oh my gosh. And I said this in the December 2nd when I was like, this little theme is bubbling up and I don't want to touch it, but he's writing it in the congressional uh, testimony. It's number eight of his rant. I think it's close to the very, I think it might be on the very last page. It says, um, number eight, various claims that I am Jewish. I guess these are conspiracy theories or something. It says, A, 8A. Okay, technically this claim is correct. My name is Samuel Benjamin Bankman Freed, and my ancestors mostly arrived at Ellis Island in the first half of the 20th century. I'll leave it to the reader to guess why they came. Now, I don't know why he said Ellis Island, because his father was born in El Salvador in the 50s. And probably for the same reason. I'm not going to... Uh, discredit that, but given that definitely not half of his family. Uh, so, and B, he says, I don't think I need to spell out the implications being made. 
Uh, he then also says another bombshell here. He said, or whatever, stuff that's being said about him, I think is where he's at on this level of the conversation. He says he's been on MSAM for 10 years because he was always and is now set. And it's for, according to Wiki, major depressive disorder, which is a huge bummer. But it is also weird that his father is a clinical psychologist. I don't know what to make of that, but anyway. Uh, all right. So, oh, yeah, the tax thing. So his father's not only a clinical psychologist, but he's a tax lawyer and a specialist in tax, whatever. I had him for crim. So I also tell you that and so I went to Stanford Law School and he was my crim professor and I liked him. He had that crazy hair at the time. Now, I guess he gave it to his son because his hair doesn't look like that. But I liked him. I've been talking to people I went to school with. Everyone's like, I feel so bad for them. I think they're taking the year off of not retiring completely. But I just can't get my... I, I, after all this work, I just I concluded that this thing is a PSYOP and that they have a utilitarian ethical belief system. And I think they think they might be doing this for the greater good. Now that's just total speculation on my part, but anyway. All right. So let me just tell you this weird arcane tax thing. It's not really that arcane and it's totally misrepresented by this court's article, which is a very good source of limited hangout. Like I like their articles, even though they're always there for a reason. All right. So they're saying that what FTX did and I think this is really important because it implies accounting and it also implies that there's some value here for the investors, uh, potentially. So they said they did tax loss harvesting, which is use losses in your portfolio to offset gains. So I guess along the way they did that. But I, I think this is saying that it has a lot, this article is saying it has a lot of uh, tax loss carry forwards, which means that they lost more than they made. And the article is saying that they did that by being strategic about their trades, um, specifically through wash sales. And I'll tell you what that is. They're saying crypto can do wash sales because it's not regulated like a security, but a security could do it as long as there was a 30-day delay in the process, which is this. You lose a bunch of money, so your thing goes from 40 to 20, and or in this example, is 40 to 17, like Bitcoin. You go from 40 to 17, and you sell it at 17, then you have this $23,000 loss, and then you buy back at 17, and then you haven't lost the asset. But you have this tax, now tax asset, it's an asset because you can write it off future gains. So you won't have to pay your normal taxes in the future because you have this write-off. Um, with, with securities, you can't, you have to give 30 days between when you sell and when you buy again. And it says, then you're no worse off. You're exactly as well as before, except you have this asset. But that's not true because now your basis in Bitcoin, it, said, it actually says you can enjoy any future gains from the investment. That's a quote from this article. And it's not true because now your basis is 17. So if it goes back up to 40, you have a $23,000 gain. Whereas if you hadn't sold it, it would just be break even and there would be no taxes. There would be no gain. Um, I guess there could be some kind of arbitrage if you can offset it against ordinary income and not capital gains as an individual. But I don't think you can do that as an, I, as a matter of fact, you can't do that as an individual. I happen to know because I always lose money in the stock market and I <laughs> still pay taxes. I stopped doing that, by the way. Uh, 
it's a little bit like gambling. Even if it's small amounts, like my mom bets $2 on the horses. Like even if it's little amounts, it's really just gambling and I'm terrible at it. So, okay. Now I will defend myself. If I, if this stuff were based on like fundamentals of value and stuff, I would probably actually do the homework, but I feel like it's mostly about policy and insider information of the policymakers. And so anyway, I think it's, I think it's fool's game, but you're, but that's probably just cause I lose. Okay. So anyway, so I know for a fact that at least the last time I had this experience, you could not write it off ordinary. So it really isn't an arbitrage opportunity. I do think it's different with corporations. They can write it off their income because all their income is like business. Uh, and I guess if they can split up the assets to the investors in this bankruptcy process, they could get some of those assets is what this article said. And like I said, that would be a reason if the investors were in on this PSYOP, that might be a reason they'd be willing to do it if they were promised that they would be made whole or even benefit in the end. But I mean, that would be a conspiracy of monumental proportions that could open people up to actual jail time. So I think that might be a stretch, but it may be a way that they keep these guys from suing, for example. So, you know, it could be part of the plan, but they don't have to be participants. Uh, so I guess, you know, with all of this, I just feel like maybe this thing is a, a big, massive multitasking psyop of, you know, pretty complex proportions, maybe, you know, to regulate crypto and social media. If you bring in the Musk, Twitter files, Dorsey stuff, uh, do away with section 230, which would keep the big players in social media and in the internet safe from startups because the rules would be different. It was designed to let people get from small to big. So now the bigs, even Bill Barr said, he's like, now they're big enough. <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, now they're too big and you're going to build a fence around them. All right. Uh, consolidate regulation. I think that's part of it. It's like make it clear who is responsible for the regulation. Make it crystal clear that a crypto is should be ruled by the securities. Um, I think a lot of what's going on right now, actually the number one thing I think is data. They want data to be individualized. SBF was saying People need to have access to their accounts. Like that's the worst thing that Ray is doing right now. I feel like there's, and I got this from the Rishi Sunak stuff with Infosys, that they want the individual to own the data himself so that these small companies can't um, hoard it, can't, can't keep it from these big guys who want it all or from the government who wants it all. There's a, an international ruling just got changed or is in the process of getting changed where EU citizens are going to have their data opened up to U.S. businesses and U.S. intelligence agencies and stuff. Like, I mean, they want the data out there. And I think that they tell you that you will own it so you feel good about it. But what you're doing, it's like the 401ks. They're like, you will own it. But it used to be that your pension fund, and they changed the laws about pension funds around the same time, so like everybody got 401ks and don't have pensions anymore. The pension funds were the smart money. They were the smart money. So they actually did protect you in a way. And when it's yours, you might not actually know what is the right or wrong thing to do with your privacy. What do I do? I accept cookies every single solitary time. So now I'm taking the responsibility for my data. And I, I'm not 
bothering with it at all. I don't read terms. You know what I mean? So uh, I think they want you to think that they're doing you a favor with all that. But in fact, it's the opposite. Uh, they, I think they want to shine a light on cowboy CEOs, perhaps uh, like Elon Musk and this kid, SBF, and maybe even Jack Dorsey a little bit with his mea culpas, but I don't think so. But anyway, and what they're doing is they're talking about like not enough board oversight. And my theory about the boards, like got people like white men or non-white men, only women basically can get onto a board that I've heard that from three different people right now. And there just aren't enough women, senior, seasoned executives like retirement age women to take every board seat in the country. And what I think they're doing is they're using that, um, was it Mencius Mulbug or something? So he told me he was saying that his idea is that they use affirmative action so that you are reliant on the hand that lifted you up because you don't have as much competence as somebody who just got it because they happen to be in the business for 40 years. And not only that, if you really don't know what you're doing and they're offering you guidance, you can be manipulated. So I have this vision that every board is going to be 11, somewhat, you know, not quite as qualified young women, younger women, and like one old white guy who either is competent and is running the show or is you know, the puppet behind the face job who he himself has the puppet master. Klaus Schwab's hands up his back and his hand is up the back of the face job of the, of the silly pop, you know, pop culture CEO, Elon Musk, Zuckerberg, like the people with the personalities, SBF, like the, the face job that catches your attention like a magic show. And this could be part of saying, hey, we need more power at the board. And at the same time, the board is getting centralized and controlled in a way that will neutralize that oversight function of the board. And I actually think, although it's a little convoluted, I think that's a, a, a perception that I think might be original and I'm going to keep my eyes open to see if it starts unfolding that way. That's another what to watch out for. Okay. So another thing is international they want an international regulatory framework for crypto. And there was also an article in the Wall Street Journal today that the CFTC is trying to sue like the international entity based on an argument that I absolutely hate. It's like the Wheatfield cases I talked to Eric Buchanan about where they say, well, because your activity affects the prices in my market, I get to impose my laws on you. And that's just everything affect the butterfly's wings and, you know, can start a hurricane. Like, <laughs> you know, is he, is he like climate controlling the hurricane? You can't, no, no, no. Anyway. Um, oh, and Dean told me after my last show that the effective altruism guy, I was saying that an effective altruism chick got SBF his seed to start Alameda in, I think it was Hong Kong. You'd have to go back and listen to it. But Dean pointed out it went before that. She got SBF out of Jane Street, but the, the head guru of effective altruism, the Scottish guy, I forget his name, he got SBF into Jane Street. So now I feel like that's getting, that's getting on to like created persons. And I think Caroline Ellison is a created person. Now they're real people who are connected to real people, but I feel like they've been set up for since their 
you know, young adulthood or youth even to play these roles. And so I do feel like it's a, a creative thing. And just in the end, I really feel like this is going to be a big drama show, as Triple G would say, big drama show. Personalities, lots of smoke and mirrors, and in the end, everyone will agree on the regulatory path forward. So that's where I am on this. Uh, I am Monica Perez, and if you enjoy this podcast, please share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it. Feel free to tweet at me, at Monica Perez Show.